Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Stand Fast. We have come to the final chapter of Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. Now, as we're Seeing now the, the, the end of this letter, Paul's going to write a, a lot, a lot of, a, about a few things, okay? He's going to talk, first of all, he's going to talk about a special offering that he wants the Corinthians to take. He's going to talk about his tentative traveling itinerary. He's going to talk about a great and effectual door that had opened for him from an Ephesus, and that's, by the way, where he's writing this letter, from the city of Ephesus, so we'll spend a little more time on that point. He's going to write about uh, faithful co-laborers, men like Timothy and Apollos and Stephanus. Um, in verse 13, he's going to exhort them uh, to stand fast or stand firm in the faith, so we're going to spend um, some more time on that verse He's also going to send them greetings from other churches, and then he's going to end his letter with some very touching, salutatory remarks or comments. And so let's dig in, chapter 16, verse 1. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. You may want to underline collection for the saints. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the what day of the week? The first day of the week. And so we see there a hint that they met on Sunday in uh, commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see that also in Acts chapter 20, that the church met on Sunday. So on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So Paul wasn't one of these guys, traveling evangelists, who came in to the church and put the big guilt trip and manipulated everybody and, you know, like a three-tithe Sunday or whatever. Paul didn't want any collections to be taken when he came. So that's his instructions. Verse 3, and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. And so, if you remember, the Corinthians had sent previously sent Paul a list of questions that they needed him to answer. And the reason we know that they sent him a list of questions is because back in chapter 7, verse 1, it says um, that, that, that Paul says, now concerning the things you wrote to me. Now concerning the things you wrote to me. That was chapter 7, verse 1. And then when you continue to read his letter, he'll say, now concerning, and he'll name and tackle a new topic. And then you keep reading his letter, now concerning, and he names and tackles a new topic. He does that over and over and over in this letter. And so the last question on the list that the Corinthians sent to Paul was this question about the collection for the saints. Now, you need to know that in the context, you always have to um, interpret not just verses, but words in the context. And so in the context, the word collection in the original language, um, logaya, refers to an extra collection. And so Paul was not referring uh, to what they normally gave, what the Corinthians normally gave. He was talking about a special offering above their normal giving. And so what was the special offering? If you're taking notes, 
It was a special offering for the poor people in the church of Jerusalem. That's what he's writing about here. And he wrote about it in several other places in the New Testament. And you may want to ask, you know, why does the church, the poor people down in Jerusalem, well, why do they need extra funds? Why do they need help? Why do they need relief? And here's why. Um, When you look at Acts chapter 11, you find out that there was this great famine that struck the entire Roman world, and it especially hit hard the area of Judea, where Jerusalem was located. And so this great famine adversely affected their crops. There was primarily an agricultural society, and so your crops were your livelihood. Well, the famine came, hit Jerusalem really hard. No crops, no livelihood, no money. And so they need some help. Now, because of this famine at that time in Acts 11, what happened was there was a really vibrant church in the, in, up in Antioch of Syria. And by the way, a very young Saul of Tarsus, Paul, the apostle, was there ministering in that church with Barnabas. And so they heard about the famine. They heard about the need. And so that church received a special offering at that time. And they sent Paul and Barnabas with that relief, that financial offering, down to Jerusalem. And they gave it, listen to this, to the elders. There was always a lot of financial accountability in all these transactions in the New Testament. And so you had a group of people that took money down and they gave it to a group of elders so that everything is above board financially. Now, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, apparently the, the, the negative effects of that famine were still being felt down there in Jerusalem, and they needed some more help. And so why did they need to receive a collection for the saints in Jerusalem? Well, because of the famine. But I, I have a suspicion there was another reason. Another reason is because, you know, it's one thing in, in, in uh, AD 55, when Paul wrote this letter, to if you were a Gentile to become a Christian, it's a whole other thing if you're a Jew living in Jerusalem and you became a Christian. Man, in AD 55, if you were a Jew and you received Jesus as your Messiah, you know what would happen to you? You would be cut off from your family. You'd be cut off from your family. You'd be cut off from your inheritance. You'd be cut off from your job. Your your Jewish boss would fire you unless he knew Jesus as his Messiah. You'd be cut off from the synagogue. And so many of these converted Jews, these completed Jews, these Messianic Jews that lived in Jerusalem, they didn't have any income. And so they they were lacking the basic necessities of life, like food and clothing and shelter. And so why did they have to receive a special offering? Well, famine, affecting their crops, affecting their income, and also the fact that they received Jesus as their Messiah, they were cut off from society. Now, Paul had already solicited funds for this special offering for the poor people in Jerusalem from Different churches, you read about that when you're reading. If you're reading the New Testament, you'll read about this offering. It comes up again and again and again. And so now what he's doing in our text, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, he's telling the Corinthians, I want you guys to step up and to give. Now, here's a problem, though. A year later, they still had not given. A year later, Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And the Corinthian church 
had not obeyed what Paul said in verses one through four. And so he has to remind them again, hey, don't you remember about this collection for the saints? And so right now, I want you to hold your place in 1 Corinthians 16. I want you to take a right to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll start in verse 5. So in verses 1 through 4, he brings up this same offering again. In chapter 9, verse 1, he calls it the ministering to the saints. He talks about how he had already reminded them a year ago when he wrote the first letter in verse 2 about this offering. He's boasting about the Macedonian churches because they've really come through with this special offering. And then he says in verse 5, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a matter of grudging obligation. So Paul is saying to the same church, the Corinthian church, now in this second letter, hey, I already talked to you about this special offering and not only did I talk to you about it, you promised that you would receive this special offering, but you know it hasn't happened yet, so I'm gonna send some brothers down to, to your church, and they're gonna encourage you to have this gift ready for the poor there in Jerusalem. And so, now, concerning this special offering, concerning this financial gift, look at what he says now in verse six. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap what? And he who sows bountifully will also reap what? Okay, so here's your next point if you're taking notes. Straight out, black and white from the word of God, God will bless us in accordance with how much we choose to give. It's right there. Now don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that you, know, um, you give in order to become rich. That's not this church, it may be another church somewhere else in the city, but it's not this church. But you cannot deny that that principle comes straight from verse 9. He's talking about a financial offering, a special offering. And so the principle is God will bless us in accordance with how much we choose to give. Ladies and gentlemen, the simple principle is this. If a farmer sows a few seeds, he's going to reap a very small harvest. But if a farmer sows a lot of seeds, then he's going to reap a larger crop. And it's the same thing with giving. If you and I give small financial gifts to the Lord and to his work, then we can expect small blessings from God. But if you and I give generous financial gifts to the Lord and to his work, then we can expect larger blessings from the Lord. And by the way, what's small and what's large um, is different for everybody. It depends on how God has prospered you. Now, I wanna be crystal clear. Whenever we talk about money, emotions get involved and motives are questioned. So I wanna be crystal clear on something here. The primary motive for our giving is not that we would be blessed by God. 
the primary motive for our giving is that we would be a blessing to God. You guys get that? That's a, that's a foundational principle because you always got to check your heart when you're giving. So let me say that again. Um, the primary motive that we have as God's children for giving is not to be blessed by God. The primary motive that we have in our giving is to be a blessing to the Lord. So we give as an act of worship. We give as an act of gratitude. We give to honor the Lord and to thank him uh, for providing for all of our needs. Now, a secondary motive for giving is so we can be blessed. <laughs> Don't you want to be blessed? My wife and I want to be blessed. So here's what we do. Our, our main reason for giving to the Lord is we want to bless the Lord. And God knows our hearts. You guys can't see our hearts, but God knows our hearts. And so we tithe and then we give offerings above our tithe. And so when we get paid, we give 10% of the gross to the local church as, an, as a, a free will tithe to the Lord. We've been doing this for many, many years. And then above that regular giving, we give offerings to the Lord. And the reason we do that is because we want to honor and we want to bless the Lord. But a secondary reason is because we want to be blessed by God. And guess what? After 26 and a half years of marriage and raising three children, we have seen God shower our family with blessings. And many of you have as well. In fact, let me see by the raising of your hand, how many of you guys, because of your giving, you know that God has been blessing you? Let me just see your hands, right? And so there's the testimony all across the room. You guys know that it's true. And so, man, sometimes God's blessings in our lives are material. So, so you decide to tithe and you decide to give special offerings above your tithe. And then all of a sudden, maybe it comes that you get a new job. Or maybe you get a raise, a promotion. Or maybe you get some extra overtime. Or maybe you get some, few, uh, uh, some new jobs. Or maybe someone gives you a financial gift. I know someone, a personal friend of mine, he came home one day and there was a bag of cash on his front porch. Thousands of dollars. He's like, praise the Lord. And I'm thinking, Lord, that never happens to me. <laughs> but God knows, right? God knows. Sometimes the blessings are material. Sometimes they're immaterial like peace and contentment and joy that the Lord gives. It's not always material. Again, we don't give to be rich. You know what, 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 what I would love to see happen in this body is that as we give and God prospers us and we give and God prospers you guys and, and us, what I would love to see is that as he prospers us materially, that we would not raise our standard of living, but we would raise our standard of giving. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? So we're not going out and buying some huge mansions and, and 10 uh, Ferraris or whatever and private jets with the money of God's people. No, we're not doing that. We're content with the things that we have. And instead of raising our standard of living, we're raising our standard of giving. Why? Because it's all about God's kingdom, not our kingdom on the earth. That's what the word says. And so... Either way, material or immaterial blessings, God's blessings are awesome. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 now, verse 7. He says, so let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a 
What kind of giver? Because that's your next point. Straight from God's word, God loves a cheerful giver. So again, we're talking about a special offering in the first century above their regular giving to the poor people in Jerusalem. Paul says, give as you've purposed in your heart. Pray, purpose in your heart what you want to give. Privately, lay it aside, store it up. First day of the week, bring it to the church. They'll separate it to make sure it goes to Jerusalem. I'll I'll come later, and then I'll I'll, I'll take it down to Jerusalem, but I'm not going to take it alone, Paul says. Financial accountability, I'll take a group down to give this to the elders. And so concerning the special offering, he says here now in verse 7, don't do it with a bad attitude. Don't do it grudgingly or of necessity. Ah, I can't believe I got to do this. How am I supposed to pay my bills, right? He says, no. Hey, if that's your attitude, keep your money. It's okay. God's, God's got plenty of money. Don't do it grudgingly or of necessity. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. So have a good attitude, a cheerful attitude. In other words, when you give, your attitude should be, Lord, man, thank you so much that you, you have provided for everything that I have. And your blessings have been so awesome. And so here's, here's a small portion back of what you've blessed me with. It's just a way to worship you and to praise you and to thank you. And someone here may say this in your heart right now. But Pastor Mike, if I begin to give, I may not be able to live. Well, verse 8 is for you. Look at verse 8. And God is what? Able. See, it's all a matter of faith, ladies and gentlemen. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And so here's your next point from verse 8. God is able to meet your needs. It's a faith walk. If you really choose to put God first in every area of your life, including your finances, then what God is going to do is he's promised not to meet your greeds, but to meet your needs. That's absolutely, he said, he is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And so he promises that he'll do this. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, right? Because it's not about the kingdom of this world. It's about the kingdom of God. The world, as I said in my prayer, is temporal. The kingdom of God is eternal. And so when we put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what does Jesus promise? All these things will be added to you. What are the things in the context It's the basic necessities of life. God will take care of us, but we have to step out and have faith in him. Go ahead ahead and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's go to verse five now. Chapter 16, verse five. He says, now I will come to you, Corinthians, When I pass through Macedonia, that's that northern area of ancient Greece. He says, for I am passing through Macedonia. 
verse six, and it may be, okay, so Paul's understanding that, you know, God is the one who's sovereign in his life. God's the one who makes his plans as far as his traveling itinerary. Not Paul, God, and so that's why he says may. Hang loose, you know, let, let God lead. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may see me or send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay with a while with you. And then go ahead and say the last four words in verse seven. Go ahead. If the Lord permits. Okay, so that should be our attitude in life. Right? We, we, we make plans, but we make those plans prayerfully, and then we also make those plans tentatively because, hey, here's the thing. We write in pencil. God writes in ink. God's got the eraser, and we should be just hang loose and let God lead. Verse 8, but I will tarry in Ephesus. Okay, that's where he's writing this letter from. Until Pentecost. Here's why. I love this. For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so again, Paul's writing this letter to the church of Corinth from Ephesus over in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And what he's doing is he's saying, I want to stay in Ephesus for a while, at least until the Jewish feast of Pentecost, the, the beginning of the summer. I want to stay in Ephesus. Now, why does he want to stay in Ephesus? The reason why, it's right there in verse 9, is because God was doing a great work there. Look again at verse 9. He says, for a great and effective door has opened to me. Now, we're not going to take time because we don't have time to go to Acts 19, but if you want to read about the church that Paul started in Ephesus, you can read it later in Acts chapter 19. And so in that chapter, we see that Paul starts this church, and then after he starts the church of Ephesus, listen, listen, a revival breaks out in the church. Incredible revival. We thought that, you know, staying in Corinth for a year and a half was a long time. No, Paul stays in Ephesus for about three years. We're going to see in a little while, he teaches from a school, a lecture hall, school of Tyrannus for two years in Ephesus. But a revival breaks out in the church of Ephesus, and that is followed by a spiritual awakening in the entire region where Ephesus was located. And so here's what's hap what happened. Paul goes to Ephesus, and you remember what he always does. His custom is, you know, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Listen to this. To who first? Help me out. The Jews first, and then the Greeks or the Gentiles. And so what Paul would do is he would go first to the synagogue, and then he would eat their lunch <laughs> and debates because he knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand, and he would prove from their Bibles how Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And so that's what Paul would do. Paul goes to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in Ephesus, and some believe, but some reject. And they reject Paul's ministry in the synagogue. And so what does Paul do? He goes down the street to the school of Tyrannus. It's a local lecture hall. Now remember, in the first century, the church was in homes. So the church was, there were no mega churches um, as far as one big building. There were mega churches in Jerusalem in lots of houses. And so the school of Tyrannus, though, would have offered Paul a larger seating capacity 
We don't know how many because um, archaeologists haven't recovered the, the, the remains of the school of Tyrannus, but we know that that's where he went from Acts chapter 19, and that's where he taught the word of God for two years. Now, think about this. The Apostle Paul in Ephesus teaching God's word for two years in the school of Tyrannus, and what is the result of Paul's anointed teaching ministry? Check it out on your screen from Acts 19. What's that first word, church family? Now that's amazing. All who dwelt in where? That's not China, okay? That's Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Okay, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so all of modern-day Turkey, at least a huge part, you can look later on at your Bible maps at the end of your Bible later on, but you see that Asia Minor was a Roman province that took up a huge part of modern-day Turkey. He says that everybody, the Bible says everybody in that region heard the word of the Lord Jesus. That's a lot of people. Some I've heard have estimated millions of people Right, because all means all. Now, here's what you gotta, I want you to follow me very closely here, okay? Paul himself personally did not teach the word of God to everybody in Asia Minor. That's not what happened. What happened is that he, in Ephesus, the school of Tyrannus, he won people to Christ, and then he discipled them, and then he sent them out to surrounding cities in the area of Asia Minor. Now, if you're with me, say amen here so I know you're getting this. Because Paul's there, school of Tyrannus, teaching the word of God for two years, and he, he, he's, he wins people to Christ, he disciples them, and then they are sent out to other cities in Asia Minor. And then what do they do? They go to other cities, and they win people to Christ, and then they disciple people, and then they send those people out to other cities. And what do the converts of Paul's converts do? They go out to other cities around Asia Minor. They win people to Christ. They baptize them. They disciple them. And so on and so on and so on. And that's the only way, that is the way that that happened, that all in that area of modern-day Turkey heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Now, question, wouldn't you love to see that happen in poor St. Lucie? Man, that was weak. Church family, wouldn't you love to see that happen in poor St. Lucie? Yeah. Yes. Why are we existing? Why doesn't God just take us to heaven right now? Because we have a job to do. And it's not to come to church twice a month to sit, soak, and sour. It's to obey the Great Commission. That's what we're called to do. Wouldn't you love to see this happen on the Treasure Coast? That all would hear the word. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if it happened in Florida? Wouldn't it be great if it happened in the entire United States that all would hear the word of the Lord Jesus? But there's a problem. Everybody say problem. Here's the problem. People ascribe to churchianity, not Christianity. So they come to church. They think church exists to make them feel good. They sit in a the pew, they do their hour, and they go home. 
That's churchianity, that's not Christianity. You see, the problem, and according to the late, great Bill Bright, you guys ever heard of Bill Bright? Bill Bright did research, Campus Crusade for Christ, you guys can Google him and look him up later. He did research, he found out that only 2% of American Christians will ever share their faith. 2% will ever share their faith. So here's what happens. People who ascribe to churchianity, not Christianity, they go to church, they hear the word of the Lord Jesus on Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday, they never say a word to anybody. And then on Sunday, they go back to church, they hear the word of the Lord Jesus, oh man, I feel good, I love church. And then they go, and Monday through Saturday, they never share it with anybody. The exact opposite of what happened in Ephesus and Asia Minor. And you, you wonder, well, why? Why in the world do only 2% share their faith? Here's why. Because people think that the church exists to serve them, and they don't realize that the church exists to equip them to serve others. That's why. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, listen, you're not here to feel good. You're not here to hear some kind of sexy sermon to pump you up about how you can be better in this life. That's not what the church is about. The church is not here to serve you. The church is here to equip you to go out and serve others. Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 12 says, God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some um, evangelists, some pastor teachers, why? For the equipping of the who, who? Saints, who are the saints? Yeah, everybody say us. Okay, so he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And so your next point, if you're taking notes, is that the church in Ephesus experienced a revival because Christians took personal responsibility to carry out the Great Commission. I'm gonna give you a little time to write that down in case you're taking notes. And by the way, all these points are available when you watch online, they pop up on the screen. But the church in Ephesus, you know why they experienced a revival? Because Christians took personal responsibility to carry out the Great Commission. Okay, the believers in Ephesus, remember the school of Tyrannus? Remember Paul's teaching for two years, the word of God? Okay. The people that he won to Christ and discipled in Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, they did not rely on just Paul to carry out the Great Commission. No, 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 no. What they did is they took personal responsibility to carry out the Great Commission. Some of you are new to the Bible. What's the Great Commission? We'll put it on the screen for you. It's from Matthew 28, 18 uh, through 20. We'll go ahead and put those verses on the screen. What is the Great Commission? Here it is. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What's the next word? Okay, go. Therefore, and make disciples of how many nations? All the nations. Okay, now what's the next word? Baptizing them. Who? Disciples, not babies. Babies are not disciples. Babies can't follow Jesus. Babies don't understand the gospel yet. 
You baptize them. That's disciples. That's those who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. We're having a baptism coming up here really soon, like this Saturday soon. So if you haven't been baptized since you made a choice to follow Jesus, you gotta obey his command. Check baptism on your box and your Get Connected card, throw it in a wooden box on the way out, we'll make sure that you get dunked this Saturday. Baptizing them in the name, here's a trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now what's the next word? There's discipleship. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All right, so the go there is evangelism. Literally in the Greek, it's as you are going, as you are living your life. Yes, some people will be sent to China. Some will be sent to the Middle East, to Canada, right? To to different countries around the world, that's true. But the vast majority, it's as we are going, as we're living our life in Port St. Lucie area, or Stewart, or West Palm, or Vero, wherever you live. So as you are going, make disciples of all the nations. And by the way, I love, what I love about our city is all nations are right here. What I love about our church is that, man, look how ethnically diverse we are. Isn't that a beautiful thing in our church? That's an awesome, we should thank God for that. Because in the past, my wife and I have been part of churches that were all white. No black people, no Latino people, all white people. And you know what? Those churches, I was like, something's wrong here. It doesn't really look like heaven. And now God's given us the privilege to pastor here. And I look around and I say, this looks like heaven. People from all different cultures and all nations. This is awesome, right? And so as you're going, make disciples. That's evangelism. And so like I keep encouraging you guys, man, you guys are touching people I could never touch and reach. So enter the conversations. Talk about the Lord Jesus. And then once they're one to Christ, maybe that's you, maybe that's somebody else, but once they're one to Christ, now the second all caps word is you baptize them. And so you, you see him get baptized, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what's the next thing that happens is that you teach. Okay, so now I really wanna hone in here. What are we supposed to teach them? Look at, look, look at this. Teaching them to, what's the word there? That word means obey. Teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. Okay, All right, church family, help me out here. Here's the test. What did Jesus just command us to do? I'll give you a hint. It's in all caps. So help me out. First word. Second word. Third word. Well, that's just for the, 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 the pastors and the reverends and the ministers. No, we're to equip you for the work of ministry. Did you guys just hear that thump? That was the ball. It's now on your side of the court. You have responsibility to go and baptize and teach. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Don't make excuses. Yes, people like Jack Worrell are gonna win a lot more people than other people that don't have the gift of evangelism. But let me tell you something. Timothy did not have the gift of evangelism. And Paul wrote to him under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he said, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Why? Because people are dying without Christ. So we are all supposed to go and then baptize and then teach. 
And when that happens, then the Great Commission is really fulfilled. And so what happens is we win somebody to Christ, we see them get baptized, we begin to disciple them, and then now they're equipped, and they go and win somebody to Christ, see them get baptized, and then they start to disciple that person, and then that person gets strong, and then that person all of a sudden is sharing their faith. You see how it goes on and on and on? That's how all Asia Minor was reached. Not because Paul started some big mega church with some really cool events and big programs in the school of Tyrannus and thousands and thousands of people were coming to hear Paul. That's not what happened. No, it wasn't come and see Paul. It was go and tell the world that Jesus loves them. Do you guys get this? You're gonna be hearing so much more about this in 2016. But what you gotta know is that a disciple is not just a learner. A disciple is a learner and a doer, or that person is not a disciple at all. He says a great door has opened in Ephesus, but verse 9, look at verse 9, please. He says, a great and effective door has opened for me, and there are many who? Adversaries. Everybody look at me, please. When you finally decide to begin to carry out the Great Commission personally, when you take personal responsibility to enter into conversations with lost people about Jesus Christ, you better put your seatbelt on because you will begin to experience spiritual warfare. Right now, if you're living your life and everything is fine and you never have any problems and there's never any adversaries coming against you, then here's what I know about you. You're not obeying the Lord. You're not obeying the Lord. You're not obeying the Lord if everything is hunky-dory and beautiful and the smooth sailing in your life. Why? Because this world is enemy territory. Some of you right now, you're saying, well, if that's the case, then I'm gonna stay way back here because I don't need any adversaries. I got enough going on in my life, and so I'm gonna be a nominal Christian. I'm gonna ascribe to churchianity I'm gonna to go to church maybe twice a month to get some goosebumps to make me feel good, how I can be a, a better success in my life, but I'm never gonna give, I'm never gonna share my faith, I'm, I'm, I'm never um, gonna have personal time as Pastor Bob preached last week in the secret place and get to know the Lord. I'm not gonna do those things because those things I understand I'll be leaving the supply lines and I'll be going to the front lines where the bullets are flying and I really don't need that in my life. Okay, if that's what you wanna do, that's your choice. Be a nominal Christian, but I wouldn't wanna be you. I would not wanna be you at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll go to heaven because you put your faith in Christ and salvation is a free gift through the blood of Jesus plus nothing but you're gonna miss out on rewards and you're not gonna hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I wanna hear that. If you wanna hear that, stay up here. Stay up here. And so, look at verse 10. This goes perfectly with what I'm saying here. He says, and if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. Now it's kinda of sad that you gotta tell a church you know, don't beat this guy up when he comes to preach to you. <laughs> this was a, it's gotta got be an ornery church here or something. You know, don't 
let Timothy, when he comes to you, church of Corinth, be fearful of you. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him. You know, Timothy's a young guy. Don't despise him. But send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, another co-laborer, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a more convenient time. Now, look at verse 13. Here's a very inspirational verse. He says, watch, stand fast, or stand firm in the faith. Be brave and be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. And I want everyone to say uh, verse 13, um, say it with conviction on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. Go ahead. Now, do you know why he says stand fast in the faith? Here's why. Because when you, like I just said, when you go to the front lines, there's many adversaries. And it's easy to get discouraged. So he says, hey, watch. Stand firm in the faith. Be brave. That word brave in the Greek means quit you like men. You know the Bible, guys, this is just for the guys. Ladies, you can turn me off right now. But guys in the room, the Bible actually says be a man. Right there, be brave. You look it up in the Greek. It says, be a man. Instead, in other words, stop letting your wife be the spiritual leader of the home. My goodness, God made you to be the spiritual leader. So don't let her on Sunday morning say, honey, babe, are we going to church? Uh, if you want to. No, you're, you should be already be up an hour earlier having your devotions praying that God's spirit would fall on this place and you should be getting your family up and leading them to church. You should be the spiritual leader of your home. You should be spiritual leaders in this church. You should be spiritual leaders in your workplace. Guys, be men. Be brave, be strong. Now, do you know why? Um, let me ask you this. How many of you guys feel like sometimes a Christian life's a fight? Let me see your hand if you think it's a fight sometimes. The, re the reason why it's because the Bible says the Christian life's a fight. That's why. We're not home yet. We're not in heaven yet. We're looking for all these comfortable things. Hey, just, just accept the fact. This is a fight. I'm in a fight. And so, check out what the Bible says. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 12. What's the first word? Fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called. And so he says, I want you to fight. But the problem is that some people think that when they follow Jesus, it's going to be smooth sailing. Oh, man. When I follow Jesus, everything's going to be hunky-dory, right? And then all of a sudden, man, a storm comes. And all of a sudden, the, the, the boat of their life is tossed about Right, And all of a sudden, the winds are beaten on the side of that life, the, the raging seas of a trial, whatever it may be. And the person's thinking, I didn't know I signed up for this, right? Or, or so, somebody says, man, following Jesus is like a bed of roses. This is so easy. And then all of a sudden, the enemy comes and just knocks the snot out of you. And you're on the floor. And you say, the enemy can't do that. Oh, oh really? Go and read the book of Job. Chapters one through three, the enemy knocked that man down on the ground. 
absolutely, sometimes, the, but the Lord had to give permission for that to happen, right? Because we know the whole story that it was a test. But, but here, here's what we've got to understand. Paul experienced this kind of life over and over in his life. Over and over and over. But what I love about Paul is that he knew that even though he got knocked down, he would never get knocked out. Paul would never, 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 never get knocked out. Check out the next verse up on your screen, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, 9. He says, we're hard-pressed on every side. Yeah, we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. He says, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Okay, so let me help you out in this church, a church that teaches the word of God. If you sign up to get off of the supply lines of the Christian life and stop being a weak, nominal Christian and you stand up on the front lines of Christianity and you're a sold out follower of Jesus Christ, do you know what you can expect? Health, wealth, and prosperity? Uh-uh. No, what you can expect right here is that you're gonna be hard pressed and you're gonna be perplexed and you're gonna be persecuted and you're gonna be struck down. But the good news is because Jesus has already won the battle on the cross, you will not be knocked out. So keep following him, keep your eyes on him and keep doing what he's told you to do. And so, Paul came to the end of his life. Check out what he said in the next verse. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7. At the end of his life, he says, Timothy, I fought. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And I have, last three words, help me out. I've kept the faith. Now, if, we gotta hurry up, but if you want to have the same testimony as the Apostle Paul, real quick, shoot on over to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. <clears throat> Matthew chapter seven, verse 24. This will teach us all how we can stand firm even in the midst of the storms. He says in verse 24, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But, verse 26, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, you got to really focus in or you're going to miss it. Both the wise man and the foolish man experience storms. Once again, if you sign up to be on the front lines, a full follower of Jesus Christ, what can you expect? You can expect storms. You can expect wind to blow and beat on your house. Just prepare yourself. Yes, life's gonna be a fight. Yes, it's gonna be a storm at times. Yes, I'm gonna get this wind. It doesn't mean that God loves me any less. It just means that I'm following Jesus. Okay, so both the wise man and the foolish man had storms and wind that beat and blew on their homes. And so storms come to everybody. Maybe it's a sickness in your life. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's a loved one who's sick or has a disease. Maybe in your life it's a job loss. Maybe it's unemployment. Maybe it's an accident. 
Maybe a loved one just passed away. This happens to wise people and foolish people. And ladies and gentlemen, what we have to understand is that if we want to stand firm during the storms, then we got to build our lives on the rock. Okay, you guys know this. Who's the rock? Help me out. Jesus. Okay. Now, if you're with me, please say amen here. Don't, we're almost done, okay? Listen, listen. You say, but Pastor Mike, I'm building my life on the rock. I go to church. I read my... Look again at verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, and please underline the next two words, does them. Does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jump down to verse 26. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine, and underline, does not do them. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the rock the sand. And so both the wise man and the foolish man heard the words of Jesus at church, heard the words of Jesus by reading the Bible, but the life that stood, the difference between the life that stood and the life that collapsed was not hearing the words of Jesus, it was doing the words of Jesus. Once again, this is the difference between churchianity and Christianity. A disciple is not just a learner. A disciple is a learner and a doer, or he or she is no disciple at all. And so your last point uh, for, for this morning is if you want to stand fast in the storm, you got to obey the Lord. you got to start obeying the Lord. Get out of the churchianity rut. Get off the supply lines and come up front and begin to serve the Lord, begin to obey the Lord. That means when you have your devotions, okay, and you read your text, after you've read, I'm so glad you're reading your Bibles. Awesome, okay? Now, after you've read it, say, Lord, what is in this section that I can obey today, this week? Okay, that's what disciples do. I'm so happy right now that in my personal devotions, I'm in the book of Song of Solomon. If you know Song of Solomon, it's an intense romance between a married couple, Solomon and the Shulamite woman. And I'm so excited about applying what I'm learning this week with my wife, Stacy. It's going to be awesome as I apply the Word of God, right? And so sometimes applying the Word of God is fun. But sometimes you get to the book of James and you say, man, this is going to take some courage. All right, be brave, be strong, be a man, and do what it says. Every time you hear a message on Sunday morning, so often I hear, and I appreciate this, I really do, okay? When you come up and you say, Pastor Mike, that was a great message. And in my heart, I always say, Lord, thank you, you helped me, okay? But, but you know what really would bless my socks off? If you came back next week and you say, hey, Pastor Mike, that message that you preached last Sunday, this is what I did. I'll have a Pentecostal fit right in front of you if you do that. <laughs> Why? Because you've left churchianity and you're accepting Christianity and you're applying these things, you're doing these things in your life. We're so out of time, but we're going to read through the rest, rest of the chapters. Does this make sense to you guys? As the worship team comes up, look at verse 15. He says, I urge you, brethren, 
you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. So Stephanus and his family got saved there in southern Greece among the first converts. But notice what they did. And they, end of verse 15, have devoted themselves. They weren't back in the supply lines. They were on the front lines. They devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Ministry means serving. So they, they, they understood, I'm not saved to sit. I'm saved to serve. Verse 16, that you also submit to such and everyone who works and labors with us. Verse 17, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. So these three guys are the ones that brought the questions from the church of Corinth to Paul. And, and, and the, their visit with Paul was so encouraging. They refreshed Paul. Paul was so thankful for the, these three guys. Verse 19, he says, the churches of Asia, they're Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, all these people, this revival, this spiritual awakening, these new churches, they greet you, verse 19. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. And then he says in verse 20, greet one another with what kind of a kiss? Holy kiss, okay, so make sure it's on the cheek, okay. Just a little side note there. Side hugs, please. Okay, verse 21. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. He says in verse 22, you guys think I'm intense at times. Man, Paul, look, look at verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. That word accursed means damned to hell. He says, Maranatha. Oh, Lord, come. That's what the word Maranatha, Aramaic word. Oh, Lord, come. He's looking for not this kingdom of the world. He's looking for the next kingdom, the coming of Christ. He says in verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And my, verse 24, my, what's the word there? Love. Okay, I had a lot of hard, hard things to say in this letter, but I want you to know, Church of Corinth, it was motivated by, because I love you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And thus ends Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.